This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. When we come to consider the nature of God, my dear friends, we're approaching the subject which is the most profound the most awesome and potentially the most glorious in human experience. When we think about the vastness, the wonder and the complexities of the universe and then seek to contemplate the being who has created and now sustains all these things, then we must feel profoundly that we are treading on holy ground and yet the God of the universe is the God who has revealed himself to his human creation through the pages of the Bible and if he has so revealed himself then it is clear that he wishes men to know him and to learn of his character his qualities his ways and his purpose in creation one fundamental question is bound to arise in the mind of the Christian at the outset of such a study and that question is the one posed by our subject is God a unity or a trinity is there one God or are there three in one is God one indivisible being or a triune consisting of Father, Son and Holy Ghost why this question should arise at all is a matter of some interest because the Jew who for several thousand years has been the custodian of three quarters of these scriptures which we now hold in our hands the Old Testament portion of them the Jew faces no such problem the Jew is in no doubt that there is but one God the God of Israel who revealed himself to his forefathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty and to the nation that issued forth from them and which he redeemed from their bondage in Egypt as Yahweh a name so revered by the Jew that he will not utter it preferring rather to speak of Adonai, the Lord or Hashem, the name if then God's original revelation of himself to Israel was so clear and so transparent, why has it become a problem for the Christian? And whither can we turn for a resolution of the problem? Well, there's only one place to which we can look for an answer, and that's the Bible itself because this is the only source of authoritative information upon this subject in the world. The Bible is the only book that claims to have come down from God and to have been inspired by God. And so, what does the Bible have to say on this matter? If we go first of all to the Old Testament, we soon learn why the Jew has no problem with this subject. Because here we are told consistently and insistently that there is only one God. Let's take uh, just a few examples. The first is in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. I'm going to be reading from the Revised Standard Version if it uh, just differs a little from what you may have in your hands. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, we read these words. They were addressed by Moses to the whole nation of Israel in the wilderness. And he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now that's a very clear statement. It was made to the whole nation and it told them unequivocally that their God was one and that they had but one duty to love the Lord their God from the heart. Now a second example is to be found in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45. And at verse 5 of Isaiah 45 we read these words which were addressed by God to Cyrus, a future king of the Persian Empire. At the time these words were written, Cyrus was not yet alive. But these are the words that God addressed to Cyrus. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I gird you, though you do not know me, that men may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verse 21. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Saviour. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Now I think it would be difficult to express the position more clearly or more emphatically than that. Now those are just uh, a couple of examples to demonstrate the Old Testament view that there is but one God and God is one. There is but one God and he alone can save. There is but one God and it is man's highest wisdom to love and to serve him. There are many other examples to which we could refer but those will suffice for the present. So let's now turn to the New Testament. What does the New Testament have to say on this matter? Well first of all let's look at some words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. These are recorded in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12 and at verse 29. Mark 12, verse 29. And the context is that Jesus had been asked a question about the greatest commandment of the law. And in reply, he quoted those very words from Deuteronomy, which we have already looked at. This is what Jesus said. Jesus answered, the first commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And from those words there can be no doubt that Jesus upheld the Old Testament teaching that there is only one God. And this view is confirmed in the words of Jesus' wonderful prayer on the night of his betrayal which John records for us in his Gospel, chapter 17, and at verse 3. We read these this morning. John, uh, chapter 17, verse 3. And these are the words that 
the Lord Jesus said in his prayer to his father, This is eternal life, that they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Notice that there Jesus speaks of the one whom he is addressing as the only true God. Notice too how important he says this belief is. He says it's eternal life to know it. That's how important this knowledge is. If we uh, go to the writing of the Apostle Paul, one of his last uh, writings, his first letter to Timothy, uh, chapter 2 and at verse 5, we'll see how the Apostle Paul expresses his understanding of the subject. First Timothy, chapter 2 and at verse 5, and there he says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Notice that Paul confirms there his own belief in there being only one God. And notice also that he makes the statement that the Lord Jesus Christ was a man. A man who performed the unique role of mediatorship between God and men. And notice too that Paul is not speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ as he was during his earthly ministry. But as he was after his resurrection, after his glorification, after his ascension to the Father's throne in heaven, he still speaks of the Lord Jesus as the man, Christ Jesus. And when Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, he's just as emphatic there. In Ephesians chapter 4, and at verse 4, he writes this. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now, in using those words to the Ephesians, Paul is telling us plainly that there's only one faith, and thus that we can only believe one true set of Bible doctrines. And amongst those doctrines is the one that there is one God and Father of all, whom he mentions quite separately from the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that time and again in both Old and New Testaments the same key message is reiterated. Now, if we look at the way both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter introduce their letters, we're again given some very interesting information. Both of them begin by telling us that Jesus has a God also. If you're in Ephesians, uh, just turn back to the opening chapter, chapter 1 and verse 3. And this is how Paul opens the letter. And his words trip so easily off the tongue that we very often don't really appreciate what he's saying. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. 
But what he's telling us is that the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the Lord who ascended into the heavens, the Lord who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, has a God now. And that God is his Father. And the Apostle Peter has the same message in his first letter. In the, Chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter also tells us that the resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus Christ regards his Father as his God. Now, if his Father is his God, then reason dictates that Jesus cannot himself be God. All these passages make it plain that the God revealed in both Old and New Testaments is one God and a unity. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, was a man. And that even after his ascension to heaven in glory, there to fulfill the important role as mediator between God and men, nevertheless God is still his God. Now, why is it so important for us to understand this clear and fundamental teaching of the scriptures? And the simple answer is that unless we grasp this, we shall not be able to understand the true significance of the sacrifice of Christ. The primary part of the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ was to save his people from their sins. And the Bible tells us that in order to do so, he had to be both son of God and son of man. He had to be son of God because no man has achieved or can achieve in his life the righteousness required by God as the basis for the forgiveness of sins. Ever since the transgression of our first parents, all men have been sinners in God's sight. Despite God's having given mankind his law and his commandments for their guidance, all men have failed to keep them. And so God provided his own son so that mankind might have the hope of salvation through him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our sins and our sinfulness, and thereby to give us the hope of everlasting life. And he was able to succeed because the divine qualities he had inherited from his heavenly Father gave him the ability to overcome temptation and sin. His divine origin also gave him a fuller understanding of both man's nature and the things of God, which eminently fitted him for the role of saviour, should he so choose. But the Bible tells us that he did have the choice. He could have refused to obey the commands of God. His being the Son of God did not mean that he was unable to sin, but it did make sinlessness possible. Let's see then what the scriptures tell us about the manner in which God chose to send his son into the world. We know the words uh, of the uh, first chapter of Luke very well, I'm sure, from 
and the many times that we hear it at Christmas tide. Luke chapter 1 and verse 30. These are the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary. The words which were told her before the birth of Jesus. And Gabriel said to Mary, Luke chapter 1 verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Notice how Gabriel indicates to Mary and to us also through the parallelism of that poetic couplet that the Holy Spirit is the power of God, the power of the great creator. And notice too how he tells Mary in words of the greatest delicacy that this power would overshadow her and that in consequence of this the child she would bear would be the son of God it was because the spirit of God overshadowed Mary to give her conception without the participation of a man that the son that was born was a unique union of the human and the divine in no other way could the Lord Jesus Christ have become both son of God and son of man The Old Testament prophet Isaiah foretells in a wonderful passage the character of this unique son, born to fulfill the role of Messiah, the righteous king for so long promised to Israel. And he outlines in powerful words the qualities that this Messiah would manifest in consequence of his spirit birth. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth these are the qualities that were manifested by the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. Qualities founded upon his divine sonship and his determination to serve his Father to absolute perfection. But it's important to note that whilst Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he never claimed to have equality with God. And he certainly never claimed to be God himself. Indeed, when speaking to the religious leaders of his day, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For what he does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. In words such as that, the Lord Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he does not claim equality with God. On the contrary, he declares himself to be totally dependent upon him. 
If Jesus then was the Son of God, why did he also have to be the Son of Man? It was through Mary that Jesus inherited the mortal consequences of Adam's transgression. He had to have our weak and mortal human nature in order that he might be able to overcome temptation and sin. He had to be tempted in all points as we are so that he could do battle with sin. He could only overcome sin by possessing the nature that we have, this flesh that is prone to sin and then by remaining sinless in spite of it. He could only overcome sin by beating it into subjection within himself. This is the victory that the Lord Jesus Christ has achieved, a victory that was completed when he laid down his perfect life in sacrificial death. For when on the third day he was raised to newness of life, that old nature had gone. And God will now accept his perfect victory on behalf of all men. God will accept that sacrifice of his son on behalf of all those who, in acknowledgement of their need, will associate themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and baptism. Let's check the truth of this by comparing it with the inspired words of the writer to the Hebrews. We read by way of introduction Hebrews chapter 2, part of it. And in chapter 2 and at verse 9, this is what the writer to the Hebrews says. He says, But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made, and remember that little word made, but we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's God, in bringing many sons to glory, and that's the purpose of God, should make the pioneer of their salvation, and that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. Those verses tell us that Jesus was made. And we have seen that he was made by the power of God overshadowing his mother Mary. And that Jesus was made lower than the angels. Now, if he was lower than the angels, then he did not have equality with God. And why was he so created? So that his life, in his life, he might experience our human nature and so have to undertake the battle with sin. This is made clear in verse 14 of Hebrews 2. And this is what we read in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature. So, just as we are human, made of flesh and blood, Jesus also was made of the same nature. And why? The writer goes on to tell us, so that through death, and that's his own death, through death he might destroy him who, or perhaps it would be better, that which has the power of death, that is the devil. 
And that's just another name for sin, the evil propensities in the human heart. Thus Jesus was made like every other human being for this very purpose, that he might have the opportunity of overcoming and conquering sin, and thereby of destroying death. Firstly for himself, and then for all those who will be deemed to belong to him. Let's go on to verse 17 of chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make expiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered and been tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Again, those words tell us clearly that Jesus was made like us and was tempted just as we are, so that now, exalted to God's right hand, he can, through his personal understanding of the problems of human existence, help all those who are similarly tempted. Again, two chapters later, in Hebrews 4, we have confirmation that Jesus was tempted just as we are. Hebrews 4 Verse 14, this is what we read there. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now the Bible tells us that God cannot be tempted, and yet Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. God cannot sin. Jesus could have sinned if he had wished to. But thankfully he was able to resist the temptation and remain sinless. Let's move on to chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 7. This is what we read there. Hebrews 5 verse 7. In the days of his flesh. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So being the son of God and having to overcome the temptations endemic in human flesh every day of his life, and finally having to submit himself to death on the cross was an extremely painful and excruciating experience for the Lord Jesus. Not only were there strong crying and tears, but there was great suffering to be endured, for it was through all this suffering that he learned obedience. What then do these passages tell us? Jesus was a human being, born of flesh and blood, and mortal. He was tempted to sin, tempted in all points as we are, although he remained sinless. He could and did die, although God raised him from the dead. He was the Son of God, conceived by the power of God, God's Holy Spirit, and he possessed characteristics from his Father which gave him the will and the strength of mind to resist temptation and sin. Those are the key elements that we've drawn from the verses we've read together. Now, when we were thinking earlier about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, we saw that the angel Gabriel described the Holy Spirit as the power of God in that lovely couplet that he used. 
Now many other passages identify God's spirit with his power, the power by which all things were made. Just listen to these five scriptural quotations. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth. And that word breath is the same word in Hebrew as spirit. By his God's spirit the heavens were made. The Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. When thou sendest forth thy Spirit, they are created and thou renewest the face of the ground. If God should take back his Spirit to himself and gather to himself his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. All those verses confirm that the Spirit of God is his power, not a separate being, but the presence and power of God everywhere in the universe by which he performs his will, the same power indeed that was granted to the Lord Jesus in the performance of his miracles, for at his baptism he received the Holy Spirit without measure. Neither the phrase God the Holy Spirit nor the phrase God the Son is to be found anywhere in the pages of the Bible. Nor do the scriptures ever suggest that Jesus was co-eternal with his Father. The very fact of his being called the Son of God presupposes that Jesus came into existence after his Father and that Jesus has a lower derived status. Indeed, the doctrine of the Trinity is not recognized by the Bible the word trinity never occurs in the Bible and learned churchmen have to admit that the trinity is not a doctrine believed by the early church. In his book, which was entitled God in Christian Thought and Experience, a book that was published in 1944, Dr. Matthews, and at that time Dr. Matthews was Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, this eminent churchman wrote these amazing words. It must be admitted by everyone who has the rudiments of the historical sense that the doctrine of the Trinity formed no part of the original message. Paul knew it not. And he would have been unable to understand the meaning of the terms used in the theological formula on which the church ultimately decided. Aren't those amazing words? Just think about the implication. The apostles who preached the gospel in the first century would not have understood what the church today sets forth as a foundation belief. Doesn't that suggest that one of them is wrong? May I venture to suggest that it was not the church of the first century which was guided by the Spirit of the Lord into all truth. How then did the doctrine of the Trinity creep into our religious language? It has always been difficult, I suppose, to comprehend with our finite mind and to express through the 
inadequate medium of human language, the merging of the divine and the human in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there have been those who felt that to concentrate on his humanity was to demean him. But the words of the original creed of the early church, known as the Apostles' Creed, are clear and simple and accord with all that we have read together from the scriptures. The creed begins like this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. It was only in the Nicene Creed, which was not composed until the middle of the 4th century AD, that we read of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as being begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. And that is terminology which does not occur in the Scriptures and which seeks to identify the divine qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ in a totally different way from those portrayed in the Scriptures. Did you notice also that the Creed speaks of Jesus being begotten, not made? And that's in direct contradiction of those scriptural passages which speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ being made. Made a little lower than the angels. Made of human flesh. Made under the law. Now if the compilers of that creed had moved so far away from scriptural teaching as to contradict the actual words of scripture, then we have good reason for rejecting all else they say. Now the Bible message is clear. It tells us that there is one God, the Father Almighty, immortal, invisible. There is one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who was also a man through his mother Mary. He was a man. He was mortal. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He died for our sins. He was raised from the dead by his Father. He now sits at the right hand of God in heaven, awaiting the day when he will return to the earth to set up God's kingdom upon earth. The Holy Spirit is God's power by which he created the world, by which he sustains it, and by which he performs all his will. The Bible message is clear. There is one God, not three. God is a unity, not a trinity. We read earlier that this was a key Bible doctrine. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ says that it is eternal life to know thee, the only true God. And that's why it is of fundamental importance for us to understand this fundamental Bible doctrine. May the teaching of the Scriptures help us all to understand more fully God's divine purpose centered as it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is our Savior and he gave his life in sacrifice that we might have hope of life. But to share in that life everlasting, we must believe in the one true God and in the saving name and mission of his beloved Son. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe, and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. Christadelphians.org.uk